So if you look at this cycle, you have a lot of the excess in credit really starting to creep in lately, but most of the excess was really in high grade, the triple B and double B. So the, the extraordinary growth of the high grade market is a lot less risky in many ways for the obvious reasons on, on credit risk from the issuer. From our remote offices in the New York tri-state area, welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. For this episode of our podcast, we present an excerpt from our weekly wrap with our co-head of investment-grade research, Aaron Lyons, and our head of high-yield strategy and co-founder, Glenn Reynolds. This oral history of the credit markets extended to nearly 45 minutes. We've broken it into two parts. If you're an investment professional that touches the wide universe of fixed income, you will want to give us a listen. Our team of nearly 100 analysts publishes content to our more than 15,000 readers across global credit markets. Please enjoy part one of the weekly wrap with Aaron Lyons and Glenn Reynolds. Good morning and welcome to the weekly wrap for Friday, March 26th. I'm Aaron Lyons, U.S. credit strategist and co-head of IG Research at Credit Sites. And today I'm very excited to be joined by our co-founder, and Chief Global Strategist Glenn Reynolds. I asked him to join today to give us a history lesson. Glenn, so thanks for coming back. It's always good to have you. Thanks, Aaron. We've got a lot of, a lot of slides to go through here. Um, <laughs> you do. You have a lot of party favors today. It's a bit of a light show, but we're just trying to you know, get people to lock in on the visuals and say, what are the critical questions to ask? Is this, you know, there are guys who can write their dissertations on one or two slides in here. So we're just gonna <laughs> try, to, try to put out there some, yeah. some questions and thoughts for people. Glenn, I thought it would be useful if we start on, I think it's the next slide. This is right. one I like because it shows such a great job or does a great job of showing cycles. I feel like we've covered this question a lot together over the past few years, but I'm gonna ask you again. We're in a new credit cycle and what cycle do you think this one resembles most? And I'm gonna ask your like maybe most hated question. What inning are we in, Glenn? What inning? Yeah, well, you know the, you know the are game we still was just the last game. <laughs> well, yeah, that was more fun when when it was a normal cycle. But with, with the pandemic, it's you know the, you could just say that it wasn't a rain delay. It was more like a cataclysmic, you know, biblical event delay. So you know, if you look across these, you can look at these as four cycles, or you can look at them as three cycles in a pandemic. And as you as you look across them, they're all very distinctive. But if there's one that it's it's least like the last one because that was a systemic crisis of epic scale. It's always some bear out there who can, you know, when the wind blows, you can find a systemic crisis imminent uh, and about to happen. But so there's very little in common with that. We have a pretty healthy bank system, the regulatory lockdown, all the things we all talked about around Volcker rules, Dodd-Franks, things going on all around the world to make sure that the counterparty and bank interconnectedness risk, all that scaled back. So that's off the table. Uh, and you go back to the first one, it's almost like you're learning by default. First one's Glass-Steagall years, very different world. It was the maiden voyage for high yield, which, you know, obviously was a smooth sail until it piled up on the rocks. So that 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 one you take off the table just on a regulatory framework and the absence of the integration of bank loan business and all of the refinancing and liability management issues that come with that that allow you to cheat death for many issuers. But if there's one, and we've been at that at this for a while, having a view that it's more like you know, the late 90s cycle, just because there's an extraordinary amount of change going on in the 90s. You had the end of Glass-Steagall and the phase in, you know, of the banks, Section 20 subs, and then eventually later, after it had been in substance largely already done anyway, the repeal of, of Glass-Steagall. And there's just a lot more capital pouring in, which led to a, a tremendous amount of excess. So if you look at this cycle, you have a lot of the excess in credit really starting to creep in lately, but most of the excess was really in high grade, like triple B and double B. 
So the, the extraordinary growth of the high-grade market is a lot less risky in many ways for the obvious reasons on, on credit risk of the issuer. But also structurally, though, you're getting it stretched a bit. The, the high-yield market was very stretched back in the late 90s. And the high-grade market in the crossover sector is stretched just because it's an over-the-counter market. And that's when, when everyone starts concocting these systemic risks around things like the triple B scale, of the scale of that, that tier and how that can dislocate markets, which it can and it does. But I think people tend to grossly overstate it. Usually they'll overreact on the, on the, the bullish or bear side and a view on, on anything that's new. And what's new here is we have a high yield market that's very much about double Bs and we have a high grade market that's very much about triple Bs. So that's, there's a lot different, but that's the one, the ability to digest massive growth and credit risk and have the market parameters keep up at a time when you know the e-trading can only move so quickly and it's still at the end of the day dependent on street market making when you have fewer market makers now than ever i mean than ever i mean going back to the to the 80s you have fewer guys making markets in high yield and even you know high grade for that matter than you had in the past and that's at an extraordinary record size so i'm voting with the late 90s but without the the scale of the unhappy ending and quality in high yield Okay, so I'm going to ask you another question. You've been doing this for most of this time oh, period inning. on your chart. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm concerned. We're in the first inning of the new cycle. Okay, that's good. Um, looking at this chart, which I love this chart because it just shows how much has happened over the years. Which ones do you think were the most memorable from this chart? And then also, which ones do you think are like didn't actually feel as bad as they look on paper. Could that be like the telecom bubble? Um, telecom, yeah, I, I, that's the one. Probably because that was a crisis of origination quality uh, as much as anything else. It was the most, uh, that so-called recession was the most muted and, 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 and the briefest on the list really. And so we had the so we had the longest duration default cycle with a very short downturn and very muted downturn. Whereas the late 80s, you were still in the throes of a tremendous amount of structural change. So the easiest one to deal with was was TMT mentally, because you say, yeah, just a whole bunch of really bad deals getting printed. And, you know, I, I worked on the sell side at the time. And, you know, uh, you really had to shoot someone in front of witnesses to get rejected at, commi at commitments committee. <laughs> so, you know, people would not would not turn deals away if, if they were doable, as opposed to if they're appropriate. So there was a, and all the banks were piling in to, to get their share of, of the battle because they, they were moving from loans into underwriting bonds. So, you know, it was a case study in excess. And then, you know, the, the downturn wasn't so bad, but that didn't mean there wasn't a tremendous amount of activity on hand in, in monetary policy because people were afraid it was going to freak out the consumer. And 2001 was you know, a case study in, in, in easing. But that's, that's probably one of the easiest to deal with. The 80s, we were still learning. That was the first time around. So somewhere between the 80s and the mid-90s, my hair went from black to white. So, <laughs> you know, uh, that was a tough one. I was at Lehman Brothers well, when we were we'll, up by Amex. So that was a tough one. We'll get We'll get to those interesting yeah. slides in a little bit, but <laughs> one question came in that says, we have never seen a recovery like the one we are about to experience with trillions in stimulus and forced savings built up, but how will it impact the cycle? Hotter, but shorter, maybe? Most likely uh, hotter and shorter, but you know, as, as history has been written, I mean, a lot of that comes down to you know, fiscal policy and you know, political risk and all of that. But yeah, it, we, usually when you have a, a super strong early, you can end up getting setbacks. We saw that even in the last cycle. You know, we, we were rolling back to par real quickly 
And then there was a boom in 11, you know, this is very early cycle stuff. And, and then the second half, you have a systemic crisis tied to, you know, it was, a lot of it was more in our minds than reality, but that didn't stop the market from talking about the U.S. Treasury defaulting, the Eurozone blowing up. So we still, I think in the future, it's going to be because of how brutal this was, there's a lot of restocking of inventory, a lot of CapEx. There's a lot of fundamental line items. If you go up and down the GDP line that says, you know, this, this has a very strong outlook. <clears throat> it's just a matter of appetites and willingness to spend the money, whether it be households, people getting back to work, people pent up demand. There's a lot of, I don't think I've seen an early cycle with so many positive indicators on the fundamental side because of the, the, the way it, it unfolded in the first place. Whereas in the 80s, you had just tremendous regional stress, a lot of industries going through hellacious globalization challenges and so on. And then, you know, TMT just had bad deals. And then on the third one, you had systemic. So do you have any of those things in this case? Well, you know, guys are working on it with the NASDAQ deals and the IPO boom and, you know, SPACs. There's a lot of things going on in the stock market that, that you know, look back to the past. But this should could be with the right fiscal policies, and that's will taxes get raised and so on. Those are the kind of things that could shorten it. But it will be a very strong, you know, next two years. That would, that would, and then we'll see how the 22 elections go. But doesn't it seem like, Despite all of this growth, and this is something that's depressing for me, and we'll get to these charts in a bit too, there's not much to earn though. You're going to have a lot of this growth, but where do you go to capture the benefit of that? Yields are so low. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've never started and, out with a cycle this low. You know, obviously, high dollar prices across the board, par plus, I guess with the exception of energy, might have dipped back below par, but, you know, that's that's more like a, a mid-cycle peak out of the gates, and it hasn't even happened yet. Yeah, it's a problem, obviously, because people, then that's why everyone's talking about rates and inflation, because they need something to explain what can beat this up and disappoint. And the idea is, you know, bad bond math and also excess in valuations. So it's a really tough way to enter. In the past cycles, you were, you, you were in, in effectively a steep curve environment just based on the traditional metric of, you know, easing into a recession. And then you just reach for yield and extend. And, you know, you kind of hang back and let it unfold for a while and see how much excess yeah. comes. Here, the excess is already here and you're already at par plus and you're already at low absolute yields, but on a yield per unit duration basis, those things we cover in other topics, other other webcasts, you know, it's still competitive high yield with high grade and actually above the median in terms of yield per unit duration. So it's come down to that credit versus duration battle that we always talk about. And equities- I like that, I like that you've adopted our divide by duration. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, that's that. It works. Tells a story. It, it's in a way it can be used to rationalize and justify reaching for yield, or alternatively, it's it's an objective metric that you still have to explain. Right. The next question that came in: What does the positive fundamental outlook imply for spreads that have recovered a lot already? Well, you've had. Uh, I mean, we had we hit 316. I think it was a cyclical low in beginning of 4Q18. Can you go through that? You certainly can because you know, you've done you've done it twice before into the 240 handles. Could we have another bubblish type of spread, just given the relative scale of that risk premium versus low absolute rates? You could, yes. So that means people have to do things right. <laughs> that means uh, keep bringing decent deals, but not too many. Sorry. How has your mix shifted in high yield? So we know double Bs have become a very large part of the index. So are you thinking that? in high yield, you would naturally see that spread tighten as the mix is improved, or is that not the case? Because in IG, it's the opposite, right? You've gotten riskier and more triple Bs and fewer As. Um, well, it's, so a time, it's a time-honored tradition, right? Do you look yeah. at relative yields 
and expectations of what the returns would be in relative context, or do you look at it in absolute minimum requirement for, like if someone says, I'm gonna give you 4% to take a single B risk, you know, in the old days, they would have had you escorted from the building, but now <laughs> it, it's a very, very strong number in the context of what's going on, say up in triple Bs, where there's a lot more duration risk as well, as you get into, you know, playing with the metrics. So, it, you know, frankly, the high yield is cheap to high grade. You know, that's that's and we, that's why we, you and I, when we came out of the December outlooks, we said that high yield was going to outperform on an excess return and total return basis. And the total return was the easier one. If you have good right. fundamentals and you have short duration, it, you're not, you know, it's not rocket science. But the, the issue of the absolute yields is just tough to tough to get past. Uh, but if you have a 5% coupon or a 6% coupon that hasn't been uh, redeemed yet and turned into premium, you hold on to it for dear life and wait for the refi and extension because you can't find those kind of yields. And when I'm, when I'm talking about not yields, excuse me, coupons in a current current newisher market, unless it's really risky. Cash flow matters, and, and you're living off the coupon basically in high yield, and that's it. And is that enough for a lot of people? It is right now because you want the income. Yeah. Okay. Next question, then, and we'll get back to some of the slides. So, is credit still the risk to take versus duration? Uh, yeah, we. I, I would, you know, probably get hit by a bus by for saying it, but I would say most definitely. <laughs> Uh, that, I think it, that, so. that credit risk is the way to go. Yeah, I think so in IG too. I just think though that, and this is what we're trying to get this note on the back end of the curve for more kind of long only buyers who buy and tuck away the, the bonds. There are some decent opportunities to get, you know, $90 priced bonds in good credits with improving credit profiles that are now giving you like three, three and a half percent yield. So, I think you you nibble away at those opportunities and we'll give the list. Hopefully I can get that out Monday morning, but I still like credit risks generally. Credit's yeah, the, uh, you know, the differential well. between triple B and double B is still wide to the historical median and that's in a much lower yep. all in absolute guild environment. So that, that, that middle strip is still a nice place to be, but you, you don't get, you know, you don't get any medals of valor for, for playing double B's <laughs> as a high yield guy. Uh, right. So people are looking at these triple C's at 98 handles, which have been really sticky around there, and they're saying, hey, can this get back to June 2014's par level? And it could. And some of it's tied to the fact that some guys may pay up if there's a hot market to lock in and refi. And that gets into that which trip, not all triple C's are created equal. In fact, that's the biggest divergence of any sector. And so the weaker B's and high triple C's and new names looking maybe to get out of loans and to lock in something lighter on covenants and extended out the curve or unsecured, they, they, there's going to be an interesting triple C trade to watch as well. That's where, you know, the, um, you know, it's like the high yield credo, like, like the quiche thing. It's real men, real men buy triple C's, you know, <laughs> and in high yield, you, they don't give you any awards for double B's, but it's a great sector to be in double B's when right. you want to take a good long-term view, risk adjusted returns over time, the metrics are there, the, you know, all the things around sharp ratios you can justify. So the, there are a lot of pension funds moving into chip, into double Bs and, and stepping beyond triple Bs. So that should help. All right. So Glenn, I want to ask you kind of off-topic question really quickly, and then we'll get back to the slides. But looking at all of these events, and I love this chart just because it summarizes so much over the past yeah, most of my lifespan. What three pieces of of advice would you give to newbies in the industry, and I guess even to those of us who aren't so new? Like looking uh, back at these cycles, what what are your three things? Well, the late the late 
the late cycle crazy deal flow has been a history uh, and we haven't really seen it yet but i think you're going to start to see more of it it's a very different credit markets today because of you know the the boom in loans and private credit and you know direct lending all these different things going on but it probably just you know beware the deal too far uh, and that's kind of kind of obvious but the trick is sometimes the deal too far starts to come a lot earlier than the crack in the cycle so some of them will perform well so it's, it's a bit of a professional risk to say you know this thing is a dog and it's going to be a problem and then it goes up three points and, you, and it's you know the, the trader looks at you like you know thanks a lot pal but the, the reality is that you know when the, you have to be scaling back before the trouble starts because like in june 07 it comes on with a vengeance and you know in late 89 and you everything fell out of bed in the fourth quarter and it just got worse. And it was still technically some of the worst markets were in expansions. 2000 was the worst year in history to that point before the credit crisis. And that was technically during the economic expansion. So credit cycle, just make sure you distinguish between credit cycles and economic cycles. Sometimes those get blurred. That's for the newbie. I mean, people have been around the block know that, but you know, credit cycles, just trying to say what a cycle is. I had trouble with that in the charts because you got to make a, a, a subjective call on really when the credit cycles were over. And inevitably, credit cycle ends first, equities sell off later, economic default cycles are at a lag, and the economic expansion fades later. The trouble comes in the credit markets first every time. Sometimes it condenses like in June 07, the summer 07 very quickly, but even then, uh, credit fell before, well before equities. All right, let's get back to your slides because you have a lot of them. Let's yeah. go to. Or we can skip over whatever you like. Uh, yeah. I just wanted them out there because you never know where the questions are coming for. Let's go uh, to slide 10 is one yeah. I liked. I think this is a topic that's near and dear to fixed income investors right now, and it's curves and rates. First of yeah. all, how worried do you think we should be about the steepening rate curve, and do they spell economic doom? I'd say no. You know, if, if you, usually the trader will give you only two choices, yes or no, not, nothing qualified. I'd say no, it's not steepness. If you look back across through history from 87 and you look where you see significant moves in the 10 and 30 year, you can't find a market in there <clears throat> where high yield didn't com compete quite well, for example. And if I'm using, I'm using high yield as kind of the barometer of you know, risk appetites. 87 was the closest to it. So that that's on the very last slide in the thing. We've written about that on the site. But trouble comes when you, our conclusion is looking back over each of these years and a lot of it's borne out in these slides. Is trouble comes with tightening and material tightening and especially surprise tightening. And and, and the worst of the, the tightening impact usually comes, you know, in late in the cycle. If you believe we're early cycle, steepening is, is, is par for the course. You know, in many cases, quickly, literally. Steepening is, is not necessarily bad i mean obviously it flows into discount rates and valuation exercises for growth stocks and all of that but at the end of the day if it reflects strong pricing power expected ahead rehiring labor markets having some pricing power and so on that means good household fundamentals and good corporate fundamentals so it becomes a case of how far does it go when you start to panic people started to panic about the home builders in late 18 and you know look at them now that's not just because of the of of the the fed and the covid and there was a lot of demographic issues and uh, supply and demand issues in there so you know when you go back to the look at the problems like in the late 80s most of these big problems with those big cracks you, it's the flattener that comes first and the or the inversion it's not steepening the steepening and we have some steepening slides in here look at every steepening we've had over the since the credit crisis and those markets generally have been characterized by extremely high risk appetites. Okay, let's go to slide 11, this next one. And so what are your thoughts on inflation? You have this history here and you know, where do you think rates are going to head through the year? 
But, you know, the, the, the whole issue with, with the Fed is, will the Fed, if they see inflation, and where will that line be? Because right now, with this new inflation averaging approach and this, you know, kind of renewed interest in the jobs part of the dual mandate, you know, and, you know, things may have changed in the aftermath of COVID. Is COVID then something that will trigger a change in how these guys are hardwired? Because generally, if inflation's high, they go in for the kill. They start to tighten. That's been the way. In 99, for example, they eased briefly in 98 because of long-term capital and also you know, Russia and EM contagion, all these things going on very briefly. And they went right back to tightening. And back in the late 80s, the market was, you know, there were this. that's this slide right here. It was clearly, you know, the market, we had FIREA enacted in 89. The financial institutions were falling apart. Regional economies were getting crushed. You know, the oil patch was doing commercial real estate. And some of the regional banks were, were sending them over the edge. And they kept tightening because they were about inflation. And they, you saw the same thing at the back end in 99, 2000, the TMT. So when you see inflation pick up, will they put the, the dagger to the risk appetites with tightening? Uh, and that's a, that's the question. And what's the number? Is it three? Is it three and a half? And we're not close to those. So, you know, it, we don't think the inflation boogeyman is going to get them this time. When it's real, it's real. That's because we look back at the things like the misery index. The guys who are in the Fed and in the FOMC, the senior guys there over the last 10 years and even now, most of them either cut their academic teeth doing, you know, dissertations on various things about inflation and how the different curve and the monetary policy backdrops would flow through. Uh, and some were professors, so they live and die on those 70s and early 80s periods in terms of how their mindset works. But we don't think it's going to happen this time because we don't think the inflation that's great with that many people unemployed. Utilization's tight, but nowhere near where it typically is when you start to see a lot flowing through. Commodities are up, so it's going to get tested this year. So we, you know, that's for our economists to decide, but I look at it and I, I look at the past and I go, I don't see that undermining risk appetites. If you go another 100 basis points higher on the long, long end, you're back where you were in, say, 2013, when stocks had their best year of the cycle until 2020, and high yield was distinctly positive because it's very strong fundamental underpinning that causes that steepening. So we, I'm not that worried about it, and I think there's plenty of history to point to why. And we're also early cycle, which makes a world of difference in tightening cycles. I hope you enjoyed part one of our weekly wrap. Please stay tuned for part two and for future episodes of our podcast. As always, you can find our research on our website, creditsites.com, or if you are not a subscriber, please contact us at sales at creditsites.com. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or produced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information complained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Received by the listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.